Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffat and Gabriel Penfield. We go as deep as we can go, look as hard as we can look, but we only scratch the surface of the meaning of the book. We only scratch the surface of the meaning of the book. What in the world is going on in the Middle East? October 7th, Israel was invaded by thousands of Hamas terrorists along its border with Gaza. These terrorists streamed across the border and committed heinous acts of rape, kidnapping, and murder. Something very horrific took place. But was it the invasion that's spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 9? Probably not. Mm. But what we know, mm. what we do know is that the Middle East is a boiling cauldron at the present time. Now, I'm not predicting anything, but I believe the Bible clearly warns that there are times coming when there will be an invasion of Israel. And we're here to talk about that with our friend, Andy Woods. But first, I want to welcome our listeners to the book. This is our 44th podcast of the book. And we go to our prophecy guy, Andy Woods. He is the president of Chafer Seminary and the senior pastor of Sugar Land Bible Church. Now, we're going to look at a book that was printed in 2016 entitled The Middle East Meltdown. Notice, however, the subtitle, The Coming Islamic Invasion of Israel. Obviously, the October surprise by Hamas is not being spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39, nor is it found in Psalm 83, where the psalm speaks of nations that are growling and rearing their heads and seeking the destruction of Israel as a nation. We have invited Andy to make all of these things clear with us as we look at his book, which is about Ezekiel 38 and 39. So hello, Dr. Woods. Hey, great to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for appearing again with us. And Absolutely. Enjoy- I am joined once again by fellow podcasters Gary Karwaski, raise your hand, Gary, and Gabriel Penfield. This is our fifth podcast with Andy, and he always writes important books, and uh, we look forward to his next whatever that might be on. But this is the timeliest of all his books that we have looking at so looking at so far. This, as again, I said, was written in 2016. So let me begin by asking, Andy, why did you write this book at that time? And what would you change now with the events that have taken place in the world since then? Um, I think I wrote it just because I've always had an interest in this prophecy. It's it's one of those prophecies that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in the Bible. No one really knows exactly what to do with it. (laughs) And um, I guess I look at it as, uh, you know, if anything's in play right now in terms of stage setting, uh, to me, this, this is it. And so it's always been very interesting to me from that standpoint. Um, What was the second part of your question? What's changed? I think you said, or yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Well, the big change since 2016 is um, the Abraham Accords. Mm. Uh, those weren't on the table. Uh, I didn't. No one knew what those were in 2016. Mm. But the Abraham Accords are basically normalization agreements uh, between Muslim nations and Israel. So remember, it, those were brought into existence in the Trump administration under Jared Kushner, Trump's mm-hmm. son-in-law. And I would encourage people to take off their political hat. We mentioned Trump and Kushner uh, and just, just look at this. Cause if you get, you know, Trump is running for president at the time of this recording and people get partisan. And uh, I would say just put partisan side partisanship aside for this broadcast, put your prophecy hat on. Um, I'm not making any statements pro Trump or against Trump, but the uh, Abraham Accords, are normalization agreements 
So all an uh, Islamic nation has to do is acknowledge Israel's existence. Most of them don't. That Israel doesn't even appear on most Islamic maps. Right. And then once they do that, then Israel says, okay, let's open up four T's to you. Trade, tourism, travel, and technology. So what's interesting is the is the the next nation that's supposed to fall under the Abraham Accords, most analysts will say, is Saudi Arabia. And now you have an explanation for the first time, verse 13 of Ezekiel 38, why Sheba and Dedan, who I think is Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. are going to pro- protest this invasion. In other words, they're benefiting from Israel, and so they don't like it when Iran, Turkey, Russia, etc., invade Israel. And one other quick thing related to the Abraham Accords, the last nation to enter into the Abraham Accords was uh, uh, Morocco. And just look at a map. Morocco is right underneath uh, uh, Spain that most people believe is Tarshish. So the two are in a Mm -hmm. trading relationship. And it says there in verse 13, the merchants of Tarshish will protest the invasion. And so now you have a situation where you can see why Tarshish or Spain is benefiting from Israel, and you now have an explanation why they're protesting. So that's the big piece of the puzzle that we didn't have in 2016, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. and let's give a little bit of an overview, right? The book's on Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, a prophecy of nations coming to attack Israel, um, a lot of different interpretations on that. Um, but the book covers it in a who, what, where, when, why type of um, approach, which is really good because you're able to, um, when I when I teach middle school youth, that's when I come in, that's where I always start, right? That That's the basic of any Bible study, who, what, why, where, when, how, right? Um, my question for you would be, you say that this is the period of time modern 21st century that you want to be living in um in over all others why do you say that why is now the time to be living in well i i think we're the um generation that sees the convergence of not just the potential of a single prophecy happening but all of them you know at the same time i don't know of any generation i mean i know the guys that taught me prophecy would probably be screaming their heads off right now if they were alive and could see the things that we're seeing. And so we're, you know, from that standpoint, you know, we're really privileged. And what's sad about it is your typical evangelical church won't say a word about stuff like this. Oh no! Even though we're living in the time period where the, the fruit is, you know, coming right off the tree. So that's why I'm excited about being alive now. Yeah, my experience has been uh, most pastors don't touch prophecy for three reasons. Uh, One, they think it's too divisive. Two, Mm -hmm. uh, they think it's not important. And three, um, they don't have a view themselves on it. And so they they reject uh, teaching on that subject. I've been teaching on it for years, as you have been Mm -hmm. as well. So Mm -hmm. I think it's vital. And these are the times. I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to leave prophecy out of your ministry, you got to uh, subtract 27% of the Bible from your <laughs> ministry. Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, oh, you don't like that part of the Bible. So, <laughs> um, Ezekiel is looking down the corridor of history way in the future, just like Daniel was. Um, Galatians 4, 4 speaks of the fullness of time when Christ came. Are we seeing the fullness of time of their predictions, their observations, their, their looking ahead in the future? Uh, Jeff Kennedy thinks that the rapture is just here. He thinks it's yeah. going to happen within the next few years yeah. know, this year. What are your thoughts on that? Is this the fullness of time that we're that you're talking about? Well, I, I for one, don't really like saying this year, next mm-hmm. year, because mm-hmm. every time that happens – people get burned yeah so i I prefer to say some put it something like this we're in the general season you know of the lord's return but 
you know, you mentioned Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. I mean, the reason I quoted that in the book is God set the stage for the first coming. I mean, that's obvious when you look at the spreading of the Greek language uh, through Alexander the Great. And as you know, Greek is a very rich dialect. So the right language was in place. And then Rome came to power. And they brought in uh, Roman peace and Roman roads. And so circumstances were perfect for the book of Acts and the rapid transmission of the gospel once Jesus accomplished his mission and the church age started. So, you know, to me, it's the right method of execution was in place, mm-hmm. you know, because the Jews, the Jews stoned people to death. And God said, no, the Messiah is going to be pierced. And Rome had, uh, had taken away from Israel the right to execute their own criminals. So mm-hmm. if, if they're going to rush Jesus through their judicial system and turn him over to Rome to be executed, he's got to be pierced. So what I'm saying is all the right pieces were in place, and you could see the Lord setting the stage. So if God can do that for the first coming, I mean, it stands to reason that he would do it for the second coming. In fact, there's more prophecies for the second coming than the first coming. And so I think we're starting to see the fullness of times in that sense, you know, coming to fruition in our, our general time period. Yeah. Yeah, most people would point to 1948 as one of those markers. Gabe, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's jump in the who. Um, Who is involved in the prophecy? And answer the question I have. I hear the prophecy always as Gog and Magog. Are those the same nation? Are they different? Why are they different? Let's answer that who question. Well, I mean, the who question is interesting because I don't think this list is exhaustive Mm -hmm. because it says many nations with you. So there could Mm -hmm. be others, but Mm -hmm. there's at least nine, you know, that are mentioned by name. Uh, You have put or Libya, Kush or the Sudan. Persia or Iran, uh, Magog, Central Asia, Rosh, Russia, and then Meshach, Tubal, uh, Gomer, and Tagorma, Turkey. And what's so interesting is once you do your homework on this, and you know, I would encourage people to put the newspaper away and just try to track where these people groups are, which I try to do in that WHO chapter. Then look at the newspaper and you'll just it'll just blow your mind because all of those nations are not only in existence, but they have a a posture and a hostility towards Israel. Yeah. And they're all cooperating with each other. (laughs) If that weren't enough, it's like how many times in your life, you know, can you be struck by lightning? But Gog, Magog is a nation, but I think Gog is the leader of this coalition and it talks um in verse 38 uh, i'm sorry chapter 39 verse 11 it talks about gog's burial i mean you don't bury a nation you bury a person so Mm -hmm. i would take gog as like a human i don't think gog is the antichrist but he's some kind of like leader of this group um and so that's probably the best i can do with the the distinction between Gog, a leader, Magog, a, a, an actual nation or group of nations, Central Asia. Oh, Gary, I thought you were going to go. In the tribulation, oh, Israel <laughs> will be attacked by these nations that you've just named for us and other ones, including the stands of Central Asia. In Psalm 83, which is often seen as a complementary text to this event, but you deal with that in the book. How do you handle Psalm 83? Can you uh, give us a little insight into that? Is, is that part of this event or is that a different event altogether? Well, usually when people hear my view on Psalm 83, they're disappointed because it isn't that exciting. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think Psalm 83 is a prophecy at all. Uh, it's Everybody's talking about the, Psalm 83 war, um, Bill Salas, a, a good guy, I, I know Bill, has sort of popularized this. And he's got 
this Psalm 83 war before the war we're talking about here. Um, I don't think Psalm 83 is even a war. It's just an imprecatory prayer. I mean, read Psalm 83. There's no war in Psalm 83. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a war. You've got people yeah. being buried, weapons being burned, all this kind of stuff. But all, all the, the only thing that's happening in Psalm 83 is Asaph, you know, the psalmist is launching or using an imprecatory prayer, praying against, praying for God to judge his perennial enemies. And what makes uh, Psalm 83 um, tricky is it mentions nations, but that doesn't have to mean it's a prophecy. He's just praying judgment on those particular nations. Yeah. So I think when people turn it into some kind of predictive prophecy, they're abusing the genre, you know, of Psalm 83. It's just all that is, is a mm. prayer. Uh, but my view is not going to sell many books. It's kind of boring. You know, no one wants to hear about the <laughs> Psalm 83 prayer. You know, they want to hear about the Psalm 83 prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's move into the, uh, we've identified the who's. Uh, let's try to get into the when. When is all this uh, going to be happening? Uh, does it fit before the tribulation, during the tribulation? Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there, including the uh, burning of the weapons for seven years and all that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of disagreement about this. And let's hear what your perspective is. Yeah, there's at least seven views that I yeah, know of. Exactly. Maybe, maybe there's more. And, and and these views, most of them come from within our circles. So Well, that's the perfect number of views, isn't it? It yeah, is. It is. Right. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. But my view, it's it's really not, I get credited sometimes with it, but it's not really original with me. I mean, I took a Bible chronology class from, I don't know if you guys ever knew, uh, the late Harold Honer. For sure. Oh, Dallas yes. Seminary. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I really liked him and I tried to take anything I could from him, took him for a Bible chronology class and one day he he brought out his article, which I quote in the book on Psalm 83, and I read through it and I thought, wow, that's I think he's got it. So I've kind of adopt adopted his view. It's basically the two phase view. That chapter, in other words, these chapters. I think the mistake people are making is they're assuming these chapters all take place at the same time. But as you go through Ezekiel's prophecies in chapter 36 the regathering of Israel into ultimately faith. That's a process. The same thing with chapter 37, the dry bones. Dry bones. That's a pro mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a process. So chapters 38 and 39 is a process. Chapter 38 is the beginning of the process, the initial invasion. I I'm going to put that with the second seal judgment when the war breaks out after the rider on the white horse or the antichrist brings peace to the earth. Mm. Now peace is taken from the earth. And that's what chapter 38 is describing. And then chapter 39 is talking about things that like the vultures, uh, birds of prey gorging on the corpses uh, because there's so many dead people uh, that if that fits revelation 19, it fits Matthew 24 um, it talks about Israel's conversion. It talks about weapons being burned, bodies being buried. Um, that to me looks like stuff at the end of the tribulation. So I think chapter 39 is a description of the outcome of everything once the tribulation period is pretty much almost over. So I'm seeing the two chapters sort of bracket the tribulation. Chapter 38 towards the beginning, chapter 39 you know, towards the end. And it's, if you want to learn everything else about the tribulation, you can't stay here in this prophecy. You've got to go to revelation and yep. Zechariah and all the other passages, but this gives you kind of the outer parameters um, of it. And one of the reasons I think that is it takes place during a time of peace when Israel is living in unwalled villages uh, there's two Hebrew words there used, batak, security, and shakat, tranquility. And the only time that could happen is after the Antichrist has already come to power through the peace treaty, 
Daniel 9.27 and guaranteed Israel's security. And that's when this this invasion happens with the second seal judgment. And chapter 38, oh, around verses 11 through 16, right in there, it talks about how it's going to happen during a time of God's wrath when his anger is kindled. Mm. Well, that's the tri- that's the tribulation period. And then chapter 39, the conversion of Israel, that's the end of the tribulation period. So that's kind of my view on it. I see it as a tribulation event or events, but it's, it's the outer brackets of the tribulation period. So I don't put it before the tribulation. I don't put it in the millennium. Um, I don't put it uh, at one singular time in the tribulation. Um, so it's, I, I would call this the two phase, two phase view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I remember correctly, um, left behind uh, back in the day, they put it before the rapture. I believe it was the war, the rapture, and then kind of coming out from that. It, but you talk about the seven years of burning and you mentioned that quite a few times. How does that, can those seven years of burning go into the millennium? Um, can it go past the day that Jesus returns? Or does it have to cut off at that day? Yeah, I mean, this is the reason why a lot of people are putting it in before the tribulation starts. And maybe the Left Behind series puts it before the rapture, but Tommy Ice is very clear that mm. he, th- he thinks it's a post-rapture, pre-70th week thing. Um, so it doesn't damage eminency. I know you guys know mm-hmm. Tommy Ice. He's yes. been on your show. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the reasons, and Arnold Fruchtenbaum goes that direction. One of the reasons people do that is they don't think weapons can burn mm-hmm. in the millennium. The weapons have to burn before the millennium starts. But my, I guess my perspective is why can't weapons burn in the millennium? Who made that yeah. rule? I mean, the millennium is just a renovation of the earth. It's not a new heavens and new earth yet. That comes later. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the millennium. People are dying. There's still death. It's rare, but it happens. Isaiah 65 verse 20 indicates that. You have animal sacrifices again in the millennium. Um, I know some don't want to take that literally. I, I take it for what it says. I don't have a big problem with memorial memorial animal sacrifices looking backward to the finished work of Jesus. Um, and then when you look at Revelation 19, 2 and 3, Babylon is burning all the way through the thousand years. So if all that other stuff's happening in a renovated earth, not a newer heavens, a new earth, but a renovated earth. Why can't you have weapons burned for seven years? Some bodies buried in the millennium as sort of a, a memorial of what, what happened in the past. I just don't see the big problem with that. Mm-hmm. Good, that's good. Well, the prayer. Yeah, it gets a little crazy because um, people try to make space for these things and they'll say, well, once the rapture happens, the tribulation doesn't begin right away. Or once the end of the uh, tribulation happens, there's a gap between right. that and the beginning of the millennium. Daniel 12 might allude to some of that a little bit. but um, So they're trying to fit these things in. Um, and, you know, I still am, I guess I would say I'm not convinced at this point, where Ezekiel 38 and 39 sets, uh, uh, take place, um, it's just I, 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 all the views, and I appreciate all the seven views. And I would agree, he's a, I, he's a preterist, I'm not a preterist, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, it's just, uh, I think there's really good men, and I guess yeah. women as well, who hold to various views, and I'm just Waiting to see what happens. Yeah. Well, you know, there. I, I, my professor, Charlie Dyer, would put it this way. He goes, it's probably not worth starting a new church. Over. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some, some, some hills to die on. But Yeah, we like Charlie. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, this would be just, you know, you just, it's, um, I saw in the questions you sent me, 
the uh, progressive illumination yes. idea. And it's, it's the idea that things get clearer as you get closer. Uh, it's not that the word is being altered. It's just you're living mm. in the right time and you can see what it's Excellent talking point. about. So, so we have to sort of, with some of Gary, these things. Gary's fog is lifting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we we have to kind of uh, hold on to th- some things loosely and not, you know, go to war over every little little thing um, because nobody. Some someone joked once that that's what the half hour of silence in heaven is when we all adjust our charts because <laughs> no one <laughs> no one had it perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. You zero in on Ezekiel 38, 2, 8C, and 11, and the Revelation 27 through 90 is key verses. And then you talk about Waterloo. How does all that relate to this issue and to Gog and Magog? Can you speak to that just a little bit? Sure. I mean, the, the reason I bring that up is because people will see the words Gog and Magog in the war or invasion that happens at the end of the thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so they think mm-hmm. that, and that's in revelation 20 mm-hmm. verses seven through nine. Mm-hmm. And so they think that Gog and Magog is this Gog and Magog that we're talking about here. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think them. there's, mm-hmm. yeah, they're equating them, but mm-hmm. there's a world of difference between those. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one difference is the Revelation twenty-seven through nine. It's it's all everybody invades Israel. This this is an invasion from the north primarily, mm-hmm. and this invasion leads to the kingdom. That invasion leads to the eternal state and other things of that nature. So, the words Gog and Magog is not enough to equate the two. Gog and Magog to me is like using the word Waterloo. Uh, when I say I met my Waterloo, you're not saying the whole battle of Waterloo is being refought. You're just using a figure of speech saying it's bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's if I can, I, this may be going too far afield, but it's like using the word Nephilim mm. in Numbers 13. Everybody today is saying, oh, look, the giants are back from Genesis 6. Right. Well, not necessarily. It's just the the scared spies are analogizing their current situation Mm. with the worst thing they could imagine in human, in their history. That's why they use Nephilim there. In my Mm -hmm. opinion, that's another topic for another day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's why uh, Magog, Gog Magog is used in revelation 20. It's, it's the standard that all future wars are measured by, but it's not there to indicate that, that we should equate Ezekiel 38 and 39. With Revelation twenty, yeah, sort of like right. sort of like Israel spoke of October seventh being their nine eleven. Yeah, exactly. Same exactly. Mm. Okay. Exactly. Gary. Yeah. Well, I think um, we can move on to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you have a two phase view. Let's let's bring that up because that's where your what's that's your seventh view. Uh, it's very close, mm-hmm. actually, to the sixth view. Sixth view, yeah. Uh, very, very close to it. But it's a two-phase view happening during uh, the tribulation. And I guess my question on that is, um, how does that fit into the Battle of Armageddon, which I don't think you addressed in the book, but I was curious about as I w- read through it. Um, I'm not. I'm just not seeing the Battle of Armageddon here. Um. The Battle of Armageddon is Revelation 16. So it's in the bowl judgments, and the tribulation period is not quite over yet. Um, I think that's what, the sixth bowl, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the tribu- tribulation period is not quite over yet. Bab- Babylon's destruction hasn't happened yet. So I'm not really seeing Ezekiel 39 as Armageddon. I'm kind of seeing it as post-Armageddon. Hmm. Um, you know, the after effects of all of these things. There's a lot of differences between Ezekiel 39 and Armageddon. So I'm not quite equating Ezekiel 39 with Armageddon. I think it's 
will be fulfilled in close proximity to Armageddon, but I don't think it is Armageddon. I think it's kind of the after mopping up campaign uh, as, as we're past Armageddon. Mm. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Why don't we um, move into the sort of, we have the who we have the when, well, I mean, as much of the when as we can have, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but the why, why, would these nations come in? I mean, there's some pretty obvious answers, but maybe not so obvious answers. Why does this happen? What are what are some reasons for that? Well, from a spiritual level, we know why. Uh, Satan hates the Jewish people. Yeah. And Satan thinks that if he can get rid of Israel, he can stop the coming of the kingdom. So he's always plotted and planned to eradicate Israel. I mean, you don't have to read far in the Bible to see that. You get to the book of Esther and Haman, you know, develops a plan to eradicate the Jews. And that's where Purim comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And so this is just another attempt by Satan to blot out Israel so the kingdom can't come because he knows Bible well enough to know that the kingdom has to come through Israel, you know, via the Abrahamic um, the Abrahamic covenant. So when it says uh, with these invaders, thoughts will come into your head or your mind. There you go. Well, who who put those thoughts in their mind? Mm. I think Satan Satan put them in their minds. It's like uh, David, remember, wanted to number the troops. And when you read the the Chronicles account of that, it was Satan that put Mm. that thought into David's head. So that's the spiritual explanation, but obviously these human invaders aren't aware of that. Um, what they're after is money because it talks about they're going to invade because of silver, gold, cattle, um, the wealth of Israel. So that's one of the amazing things that's happening now is not only is Israel reborn, but she's becoming phenomenally rich whether you're talking about mineral deposits in the Dead Sea, uh, oil uh, in Zion, uh, you know, you know, most of the um, gas off the Mediterranean, gas off the yeah. northern Israel's, Israel's yeah. northern coastline, and I think Israel is on the precipice of a gold discovery mm. Be- because when you read the Solomonic time period. In the Bible, it says gold was as common as, you know, stones. Mm. And and look at the account of Israel going into captivity uh, in the Ezra, Nehemiah, etc., and coming out of captivity. There's there's records of what they took in and what they brought back from Babylon, but it pales in comparison to all of the gold in the Solomonic time period. So the answer is, where did it go? Where did all the gold go? Well, I think the Mm. Jews hid it. Most of it, maybe they left a little, but they hid most of it so Nebuchadnezzar couldn't get it. And they hid it so well that subsequent generations forgot where it was. And there's a whole Mm. teaching on this with the Mm. copper scroll Mm. and all kinds Mm. of things, but... You know, I think Israel's on the precipice of seeing a major gold discovery. Uh, Russia, as you know, is with its ruble, is trying to get, you know, gold, gold trying to get it gold backed, etc. And that's what Ezekiel 28, 12, and 13 says. They're invading because of the gold and silver. So um, that's the human explanation. These nations are coming for Israel's wealth. You know, Mark Twain visited that part of the world Mm -hmm. in the late 1800s, and he says there's nothing here but a barren expanse. Uh, There's there's no nation here. There's nothing. And here Israel comes back into the land, like God said would happen, and they start getting rich in preparation for this invasion. So everything is everything's moving right along to what God said would happen in the end times. So uh, I guess sort of a joke, but also sort of serious. If they find the gold, do you think maybe Ark of the Covenants buried with it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the same well, time period. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's a kind of a debate on the ark where, where mm-hmm. it is. Um, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah that indicates the ark would go away and never be found again. Mm-hmm. I want to say that's in Jeremiah 3. So I've just never really attached uh, too much weight to all these rumors as to where the ark, ark is. But, you know, I could be wrong. Yeah. I just don't see the ark as, I mean, if they just rediscover it, wonderful. I don't see it as necessary though yeah. for the end time scenario. Yeah. But, 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 but the gold and silver has to be there yep. if, if it's literal. Um, Cause I used to argue this in terms of oil and minerals. And I had uh, Gary DeMar mm. who's a predator, who is a preterist. Yes. A, a real preterist. He, raked me over the coals one time in an article because I wasn't taking the Bible literally because the text mm-hmm. says gold and silver. And so I started looking to that and said, well, fine, Gary, it very well could be gold and silver. Look at all of the gold that was never discovered in the Solomonic time period that's buried somewhere in Israel and could get resurfaced somehow. And that, you know, becomes the uh, motivation for the, for the invasion. They do refer to oil as liquid gold. Yeah. <laughs> um, Trump it, just it, did that is, like five times the last time he was on TV. Isn't uh, um, DeMar a, a, a Dominion theology guy? Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he'll. He, he would be a um, what I would call a um, preterist, partial preterist, uh, post-millennialist. Mm-hmm. So he he actually believes he's ushering in the kingdom, yeah, and yeah. A, eventually Jesus is going to come back and find everything in apple pie order. Wonderful. And and his big <laughs> his big problem is the Book of Revelation and Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine. There so you go. He, so he has to preterize, pretend like these things already happened. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past and. You know, I always like to, with Gary DeMar and those like him, bringing the kingdom. It's like, how's that working for you guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, society, is society getting better? Doesn't look like it. Gary? Well, okay. Um, so we've gone through, as we're looking through the book, who, when, uh, why. Uh, we've got a couple more. we got a what and a how. Uh, maybe we can go to uh, those a little bit and uh, uh, talk about how that's going, how that's going to happen. And I think we're, we're looking at too, because you know, the book is prescient as far as what's happening now. Um, there are those who also hold to the uh, ten nation federation that's going to be showing up in the in the tribulation is indeed Muslim. So there, you know, it's got to do with the Mahdi and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to get our lost in the weeds too much, but let's co- talk about the uh, at least the, that question: the, um, the how, what's going to happen? How? Well, how is basically analyzing how the world stage is being set up for this invasion, and every single one of those nations that we mentioned, the nine nations, with the exception of Rosh. Yeah. Islamic. Every single one of them Islamic yep. is Islamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I look at Islam, particularly in that part of the world, as sort of the tie that binds. Because Islam furnishes the motivation for the attack. Because to modern day Islam, Jerusalem is a holy site. I think they claim it illegitimately, but too. They they think it's a holy site. That's where Muhammad uh, allegedly ascended back to Allah on a steed named Barak of all of all names. Oh, <laughs> um, can't, you cannot make this stuff up. No, any. we can't. So any nation that exists in that part of the world that Islam once ruled over, they look at as a uh, usurper. Mm-hmm. So as that and people need to understand that Islam is is people say oh, well that's just a religion well no it's not if you mm-hmm. if you study their fun, foundational documents most of it deals with politics and the imposition of Sharia law uh, over the world mm-hmm. uh, caliphate 
you know, is what they call it. So Islam is a world conquest political ideology that's just as real as Marxism um, as is a world conquest ideology. So as Islam spreads, uh, and you even see it in our own country, our own country, you know, you've got uh, these hearings that happened just this week or last week, was it at the time of this recording, you know, where our university presidents oh yes um would not condemn based on their own code of conduct uh statements of genocide against jewish the jewish people and their jewish students Mm -hmm. so you know everyone else's free speech is regulated but the people that want to you know call for genocide against the jews they're given freedom at our universities so you know, this, this Islamic mindset is even spreading into the United States. And as this grows, you, you now have the incentive or the motive for the invasion of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Islam gives you that ideological motive. And so I look at Islam as just a massive uh, uh, thing that's being used right now to set the stage for this invasion. Yeah, I think um, there they're wanting to have Jerusalem be their third holiest site. Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. The other two, Medina and uh, Mecca, are in mm-hmm. Saudi. But um, curious about that is that the the uh, the Quran never uses the word Jerusalem, ever. Not one time. 600 plus times, I think, in the Bible, but never in the uh, uh, never in the Quran. So it's, it's kind of funny that they claim that, I think. Well, Islam is yeah. not monolithic or unified you have two different branches of it yes and so what you're going to have to see is them overlook their differences to come together and the big pearl is israel Mm -hmm. that they want um but there is importance to their faith with the idea of the unholy trinity the Mahdi and the 12th Iman. Iman. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are important concepts and ideas that all play part into this and why they want to destroy Israel. Um, you mentioned a term, uh, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Tayaka. Is that how you say it? Which means. I think they it's. Can... Uh, yeah, I think it's Takia. 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 Yeah. That's it. That they can lie to further the cause of Islam. So how does that play into like the um, recent accords that were made with the Islamic nations? To, could they just be lying? How do yeah. you view that? No, I mean, of course, of course they're lying. You, you, in Islam, you are allowed to lie to advance the cause of Allah. Just like in Marxism, you're allowed to lie to advance the cause of communism. That's allowed. Now, with our belief system, um, we have one of the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not, you know, bear false witness. So, you know, this is the foolishness of this interfaith dialogue mentality Mm -hmm. where these evangelicals want to bring in Mm -hmm. Muslims into their churches to have interfaith dialogue when the guy you're dialoguing with has permission to lie. And it's the foolishness of trying to go over to that part of the world and mm-hmm. trying to treat this like you're building a hotel or something, you know, the art of the deal. Uh, when you're building a hotel in the business world, you've got two parties that are, I mean, most of the time acting in good faith. They're going to mm-hmm. keep their end of the bargain. Well, you're dealing over here in the Middle East with a mindset that uh, is different, is, is totally different. It's not like a Western business deal you're dealing with someone that can lie and will lie and is in fact supposed to lie as long as the cause is being advanced. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, they can enter into all these uh, Abraham accords currently, but we know from this prophecy that they're going to break their word mm-hmm. and so, invade Israel. So you have Islam becomes monolithic and agrees with one another to attack Israel. But what about all the other nations? What's their motivation? The United States obviously is not mentioned in uh, prophecy, as most people know, how do all these other nations and what's their motivation for joining in and attacking? Well, all I can say is all the nations that are listed are Islamic. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, R- Russia would be an exception, but I've seen statistics on how mosques are accelerating throughout Russia. Mm. Uh, R- I think Russia's motive is finances and money. You know, Russia yeah. is Marxist. Okay. The communist revolution happened there in 1917. And you probably have heard the expression, the red green access. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the cooperation between Marxism mm-hmm. and Islam. So you were mentioning the divergence within Islamic thought between Sunni and Shiite. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly a divergence in thought between Marxism and, and Islam. But here's here's the deal. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. My friend, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's like, um, what is it, Luke 23, Herod and Pilate? They used oh. to be. They used to not like each other until the time time came to get <laughs> rid came. of Christ, and they became best buddies. They did. The they did. <laughs> Russia's always always been aligned with Egypt, though. Even way back in the fifties, I can remember uh, they built uh, the big dam that's that's in Egypt for them. So, and they've supplied all, a lot of their uh, military equipment. So they've always been aligned with them, but even though they have divergent views on a lot of things, but eventually they're going to come together. And on the, you know, what you say about Islam is going worldwide. Like I just read a statistic that London had seven mosques 20 years ago. And now it's got 1700. I mean, it's spreading everywhere, including the United States. So yeah. maybe it's not listed, but, somehow the nations are going to come together. And I think you give two reasons in your book. One is financial, which I think we've already talked about. It would be Revelation 18, yes. Mm -hmm. Lament over Mm -hmm. the destruction. And and the other would be uh, anti-Semitism or hatred of Jews. Um, We're seeing that today in the United States, all over the place with, with these riots and protests at colleges and around the country. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as much as I despise the events of October the 7th and following, something really good has come out of it. And the anti-Semites are now out in the open. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know exactly who all of them are. I, all I got to do is go to their Twitter feeds. And, you know, we expect anti-Semitism from the left uh, I've seen a ton of it from the right that I wasn't expecting, but now I can I can see it. Um, so I I do believe that this uh, influence of Islam and worldwide anti-Semitism um, is is accelerating. Mm. Uh, not a big shock because Zechariah no. predicted that the whole world would come against Israel in the last days. And the whole world would also include the late great United States of America, if we're even around, you know, as right. a country when all this stuff happens. Yeah. Um, Every go ahead, Gary. Go ahead. Well, I, I I know we want to get down to the last question there about the applications, mm-hmm. but if you have something before that, uh, no, go ahead. Let's, let's let's do that because uh, you conclude the book, which I think very well done. Seven points of application. By the way, this is good for Gabe because every preacher should have application of his sermon at the end of it, right? There you go. Hey, the- uh, theology so. is useless without application. Mm-hmm. Ooh, wait a minute. It's not useless, but it's... So, so how it's, do we apply your book? So, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got a lot of good stuff here. And, I, and I, when I read through this, I thought, this is really good. This, this t- to me, puts it on the level of the average person um, in our churches. So that um, we're not just reading a, you know, a a, a end times prophecy thing. Historical there. book. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's well put together. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, on page ninety four, I've got them listed. Um, I didn't think you were going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, but. I mean, there's several things here. I mean, one of the biggies to me is it proves the Bible is got from God. Because you, you kept saying my book is prescient 2016. Really, I mean, 
as much as I would like to think my book is preaching, it's the Bible that's preaching. I mean, the, my book is just a commentary on the Bible. I mean, God, God said this would happen. I mean, Ezekiel said this 2,600 years ago. Um, I think that's one of the things you one of the things that you emphasize is how all of these things look 20 years ago to be impossible. And now they've all switched as far as political alliances like with Iran or Persia. Yeah, they've all now come to align with the biblical context, which is really, really showing that the Bible is inspired. Yeah. And I think as an application point, people can bring this into their evangelism. Mm-hmm. because the world I've, I've discovered the world will give you a little bit of a hearing when you start talking like this, mm-hmm. because there's no other book that gives you this information. I mean, for example, this prophecy had made no sense pre 1948 because mm. there was no Israel to invade. Mm-hmm. It made no sense pre 1917 because Russia was a Christian Orthodox country pre-communist revolution and wasn't going to invade anybody. It made no sense pre-1978, 79, because Persia was an ally of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, Iran didn't flip until the Shah was deposed and replaced by the Ayatollah. And it really made no sense in terms of Turkey because Israelis used to take their vacations, you know, into Turkey. Turkey wasn't going to invade anybody, but as we've gotten further in time, every time I revisit this, the scenario doesn't get cloudy. It always gets clearer. And so, I mean, I think people, I think Christians should use this in their evangelism. Yeah. There's your progressive illumination. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. And I I 100% agree with that. Like, I've I've had a few conversations with Jewish people and the second you mention Christians have a bad rap and you see it throughout history. I mean, you've talked about Martin Luther being a very not very supportive of the Jews, anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. Um it, but you talk to a, a Jewish person, tell them, Hey, I support you, I support the Jewish people, I believe you're still God's chosen people. They look at you differently and they're more willing to accept your message if you teach the Bible the way it's supposed to be taught. Yeah. Well, you know, a major point of application with all of that that you just said is God's faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if God is going to keep his word to the Jew, he's going to keep his word to you. Yeah. Uh, that's Paul's whole point in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Mm-hmm. That's why mm-hmm. Paul talk, talks about that Israel issue. And it's, um, you know, God. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And as the world is being set up for the fulfillment of his grand design, which will include a reborn politically and spiritually Israel, yeah, and God has to do that because that's what he promised he would do, I, I grow in confidence that he's going to keep his promises to me, you know, as a Gentile Christian. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful study because it's a vindication of God's character. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, oh, where was I? I was just going to go somewhere, and I just it, I lost it. There it is. You, you say that Christians can be calm and don't need to fear Islam. Fair. Which, which I think a lot of people do. We're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of another war in which our, our, my grandkids are going to have to go out and fight Islam, if not in Afghanistan or Iraq, it could be in the stands over in Central Asia or even fight for Israel in the Middle East. So how does this keep us calm and how does this keep down our fears from what Islam could do? Yeah, it's easy to become afraid of Islam. Um, You asked me earlier, I think, before we came on the air, how are things going in Sugar Land? Uh, what came through my head, I didn't want to say it, but I'll say it now, I guess, is Islam is just growing like crazy out here. Mm-hmm. In fact, I made a wrong turn. <laughs> I uh, turned one one turn before my normal light that I turned. I made a wrong turn into an Islamic cultural center, which is literally five minutes from where I am right now. And I turned in on, a, I think it was a Friday 
and it might have been during Ramadan. Mm. And I, the, the size of that place, it looked like any mega church in the United States. It was, it was that big. And I'm just trying to find the exit. I'm saying to myself as I'm driving through, I cannot believe the size of this. Wow. Because they, they don't, when they plant their, their places of worship, so-called, they don't do it like we evangelicals do it. We, you know, we plant a church somewhere and then we go out and encourage, try to evangelize and get people to come to church. I mean, they import their church mm-hmm. from across the borders. So that's how they grow these massive mosques. And, you know, I see these women in the Houston sun wearing full on mm. and, and Houston, Houston is hot. Okay. Yep. Uh, full on burkas where the only thing this poor gal can see out of is this little slit for her eyes. And there she is walking, you know, in the mall or wherever, you know, five feet behind her husband. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, please don't let this thing spread because I've got a daughter and you guys have grandkids and I don't want them to grow up under Sharia law. So, you know, as, as a human being, we get sort of um, nervous about stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but you know, God says Islam gets its day in the sun, but it's going to be destroyed. He's going to personally destroy it in the Gog Magog battle, just like Russia. You know, Russia's going to meet her end there on the mountains of Israel. Mm-hmm. So God, you know, God's got this. <laughs> God's got everything under control. So that's a point of application I need to hear, you know, when we look at the, just the overwhelming evil, you know, that's spreading across our country. Yeah. Yeah. It's being disguised, though, as well. CARE, C-A-I-R, Council of yeah. American Islamic Relations. It's a Hamas uh, infiltration group in 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 the yeah. co- in our country. So, uh, but you're right. God's got it un- under control. It's coming to an end. We're seeing it. Uh, I firmly I agree with you. I don't put a timing on the rapture, but it's as closer as ever been. And we can see uh, stuff is just falling into place. All we need to do is yep. watch Israel. See what's happening there. That's yeah, and we were just there. And we were just there in June. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you were there at a good time. I, I my trip I couldn't get in. I had I was on a Mediterranean cruise and they wouldn't let us in for you know obvious really? reasons. Yeah. Um so I didn't get a chance to go. I've been, I think, uh five or six times. Yeah, us too. Yeah, yeah. we were there for almost a month, so in June. So oh, close. good. Yeah. Excellent. It was, it was really, so you were suffering for Jesus on a cruise. <laughs> I was, yeah. Someone's someone's got to do it, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad it's you and not me. <laughs> I was in the Navy for four years. That was enough. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so watching Israel, keeping our eye on Israel, that's kind of the barometer of what's happening in the world. That was one of the applications that you made. And we should pray for yeah. her and support her. Yeah. Well, W.E. Blackstone in 1908, famous book, Jesus is Coming. He was kind of like a uh, pre-Hal Lindsey guy, kind of guy. His book became a bestseller. And um, he has a statement in that book about how Israel is God's sundial. And this was 40 years before Israel became a nation. So he said, you know, if you want to know what time it is, um, look at Israel. And even in this prophecy here, uh, Ezekiel describes Israel as the center of the earth. And when this invasion happens, and the center in Hebrew is the Hebrew word for navel or belly button, mm-hmm. which is the center of the body. So as far as God is concerned, this is the centerpiece of everything. So obviously as a Christian, uh, who understands prophecy, you want to keep your eye, you know, on the nation of Israel. And if, in other words, Israel's rebirth in 1948 is the super sign. Um, that that piece of the puzzle has to go in first. Everything else we've been talking about, you know, Turkey, Russia, Iran, none of it makes sense without that first piece of the puzzle. But once that's in place, Everything else will orbit around the rebirth of Israel. 
And this invasion is a description of how Israel becomes, goes from being an unbelieving nation, which he is currently, mm-hmm. to being a believing nation. I mean, how does that happen? Ezekiel 36 and 37 say it's going to happen. We just don't know how until we read chapters 38 and 39. Chapters 38 and 39 is the tool that God is going to use, the Gog, the Gog Magog um, invasion. And so um, that's why I think Israel is so significant, why we need to watch Israel constantly. And then in terms of supporting Israel, I mean, if if God, if his agenda, and apparently it is, is to protect Israel, bring her through the fire, and bring her to saving faith, that means God is pro-Israel. So if God is pro-Israel, then I think I should be pro-Israel. There you go. <laughs> because I, I think at the end of the day, we want to be on God's side, right? I think that's a fair, mm, that's an admirable thing to, to do with one's life. And if Satan's goal is to eradicate Israel, and all of these people today are speaking against Israel, I don't want to be on their side because they're doing the devil's work without even knowing it. So your posture on Israel sort of determines, um, it allows us to take sides in the angelic conflict. Well said. Gabe, what's the last application? Uh, I don't have my book in front of me. (laughs) Oh. It's, it's, I thought you should read this one. It's that we live on borrowed time. Oh, the young one. The young one here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah stewards think, of our I time, think, right? I think sometimes the young people think that we are just uh, like the boy crying wolf, you know, that we're always talking about the rapture, the, the, the coming tribulation, and they kind of want to live their life and, you know, enjoy it and um, see what God's going to do in and through them. But we are on borrowed time. It could be right now as we're closing our, our time on this podcast. Yep. Um, there's the balance to keep in play because yeah, that's, there, the, there that's, is. that's a hard oh, balance no. to find is mm-hmm. how can I, how can I prepare for the future? I, the Bible doesn't call us to abandon the future, but at the same time, how do I live with that imminent return of Christ that could happen tonight. Like that's, yeah. that's the balance we as Christians have to somehow follow. Well, if you read J.B. Hickson, we should be preppers. <laughs> we should, <laughs> I don't think, yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, yeah. But what, what did you mean by we live on borrowed time, Andy? Well, I mean, the analogy that I, I that has been used before um, is works perfect this time of the year even though we're post Thanksgiving now, but around uh, November 1st, after Halloween is over, they start playing Christmas songs and Mm -hmm. putting up Santa Claus and Christmas lights and the uh, department stores, et cetera. And you say to yourself, wow, wow. The signs of Christmas indicate that Thanksgiving is near (laughs) because, (laughs) right. Because Thanksgiving is earlier on the calendar than Uh Christmas. So if the signs of Christmas are means Christmas is coming, that Thanksgiving is coming even faster. And I think that's a pretty good analogy related to understanding the signs of the tribulation period. Wow, the tribulation period's coming fast. Look at everything going on in the world. Well, that means the rapture is coming even faster. And I don't I agree with Gabe. Uh, that doesn't mean you abandon life. No, it just means it just means you pursue life with different priorities. Yep. You know, you put more emphasis on things that are going to last than sort of fleeting, fleeting things. So I think I, I think we need to do a better job messaging. You know, if we're if we're telling young people that we're they should drop out of life, um, that's not what the Bible teaches. We should I think we should tell them that this information helps them live their lives purposefully and for eternal things. And I think that's, that's the value of prophecy. Amen. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. We appreciate your insights. We appreciate your study and putting that into book form so that people can get it even in this small amount. 
there's a great <laughs> impact in your life if you read it. So we encourage people to get the book, The Middle East Meltdown by Andy Woods, and read it and live it and see those seven applications at the end. It will impact your life. So thank you, Andy. Is there anything you wanted to share about upcoming ministry or anything you want people to know um, that you wanted to share here before we close? Well, you all mentioned uh, when we were off the air about our prophecy conference here at mm-hmm. Sugarland Bible Church. Um, mm-hmm. I would invite people to come to that. Um, you can go to our website, slbc.org, to find out about it. But it's a, it's a flood to final days conference. So it's dealing with those two great doctrinal bookends, the miraculous beginning and the miraculous ending. And we have, uh, as a creation science guy handling the creation side of it, a guy named Russ Miller, mm-hmm. who's very good. Our our youth group went with him to the Grand Canyon, and they just loved it. Mm-hmm. I joined the youth group for that event. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and uh, the conference is free as well. It doesn't cost anything. They're they're well. It's free live streaming. Okay. There's a very nom- nominal um, fee. We have a banquet Friday night, an all day conference Saturday. So there is a nominal fee. It really relates to us being able to feed you lunch and all that kind of stuff. So it's not an exorbitant fee right. when you compare our, us to most conferences. But the prophecy side of it is going to be handled by speakers like David Reagan, um, Olivia Milnick. Uh, who, I'm not sure if you know him, but and, and myself, myself. So, so we're going to be dealing with uh, flood to final days conference Friday night, a banquet, and all day Saturday. And then we invite people to stick around Sunday for church, as some of those guys are going to be teaching at Sugarland Bible Church during our regular services. And what are the dates of that again? It's the 23rd and 24th of February. In, in the new year, assuming we're still here. <laughs> we're out uh, borrowed so. time. We sure, so are. Every, we sure are. Everyone, make your plans to go to Sugarland Bible Church in February the 23rd? 23rd and 24th, yeah. 23rd and 24th. And yeah, Houston again, is nice at that time of year. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Andy. All right, guys. Appreciate the opportunity yeah, to be with you. Again. May God bless okay. you and keep you and uh, your family as well. And we will see you next time. All right. Somebody used to say to me, here, here, there, or in the air. Amen. Amen. for listening to another episode of the book podcast if you liked what you heard and want to support us like follow subscribe on any podcasting platform on youtube on facebook instagram or twitter simply type in at hear the book pod at hear the book pod thank you see you next time